everybody. Welcome to the New Market Alliance Church Podcast. For more information on the vision, programs, and news of our church, be sure to check us out at www.newmarketalliance.ca. We'd like to encourage you as well that no podcast, no matter how good, can substitute for the experience of joining together in person at a worship celebration. That's where God really meets people, often through the love and ministry of others. At NAC, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. Now let's join this week's teaching. I wonder how many in this room have been affected by divorce in one way or the other, a ripple effect. You know, some, some of you may have been divorced. Um, your parents may have been divorced, grandparents, your siblings, people really close to you. Um, I wonder I wonder if you would even raise your hand if, if divorce in some way has touched your life. Don't be shy. Yeah, like most people, 90%. And perhaps uh, some of you struggle with that pain of longing to be married, looking forward to being married, but having like great frustration, concern because you come from a divorced home. And let's just be honest enough to say that like divorce has a lingering effect for the rest of everyone uh, whose life is involved. And perhaps a myth of divorce is someone thinking, well, I just want it to be over. And in almost every case, it's never truly over, is it? Um, If you still have kids, you're not done with each other's lives. Those kids are going to grow up, and then they're going to get married, and then you're going to be at a wedding together or um, maybe see each other at some holidays, and there's grandkids maybe are going to be evolved eventually. And so the myth is that by getting divorced, well, it's over. It's, it's not over, is it? It, it just gets complicated. Um, you still have the effects of your past life together. And uh, what was happening to this church in Corinth is that people had become Christians and they were sick of each other and, and they wanted to get divorced because all human beings at some point who are married will secretly or not so secretly want to get divorced. I know some of you are single and you're so sweet and naive and I just want to pinch your cheeks. You're so adorable. Because uh, you think, no, no, no. If I love Jesus and my spouse loves Jesus, then it'll be great all the time. No, it won't. At some point, you are going to toy with the idea of divorce. I assure you that when two sinners marry, sinners cause conflict and harm on each other. And that's just the truth. So, so what about divorce? What does the Bible say about it? Well, I think, first of all, we should talk about what the Bible says about marriage. What do we know about marriage? We know that God made marriage, Genesis 2. It's not good for mankind to be alone. So God brings the first couple uh, together. God initiates their relationship. God is the first one to play matchmaker. Adam, I'd like you to meet my friend Eve. I think you'll find you have a lot in common. And, you know, God's the first okay Cupid, the first um, match.com. What are you kids doing these days? Swipe right? Yeah, first uh, Christian mingle. 
And God officiates the first wedding ceremony. God created marriage, and God doesn't create bad things. Now, secondly, God made marriage with the intention that it would not be broken. And, and that is, it would be marked by oneness. That's why it, uh, it says in Genesis 2 that the two would become one. One flesh. Ekad is the word in, in the Hebrew. Um, and that word, curiously enough, is used in Deuteronomy 6.4, um, which the Jews call the Shema. Shema. Just say Shema with me. Shema, which you've heard before. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. He is Ekad, one. And so in the same way that the God, the Father, uh, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit are mysteriously one, one God, um, that's the Trinity, so the husband and the wife mysteriously, Paul says in Ephesians, they are mysteriously one flesh. So Jesus says in Matthew 19, what God has brought together, let no one separate. And this oneness means that emotionally, and physically, and mentally, and financially, and spiritually, you're one. You're no longer two people. And that's why people, uh, married couples, live in one house and have one bank account and oftentimes take one last name. And, and that's why they worship one God and they, they have one set of goals, you know. That's because they are one. I, can I just tell... Paul and Lori, is it okay, the T-shirt? The I just think, I'm just going to do it anyways. I'm just going to tell them. <laughs> um, Paul and Lori, the Jolliker family, have T-shirts. It's like Team Jolliker and a little logo and the values. And I just think if you ever see it, it'll just make you misty-eyed because it's a beautiful picture of oneness, of Team Jolliker. We are one and I think it's it's a way of even showing kids just a little bit of what the Trinity is like. So so God made marriage and He intends it to be unbroken. Proverbs two and Malachi two refer to marriage as a covenant. Okay, so so let me distinguish this between a contract. One of the big problems with marriage in our nation is that it's seen as a contract, isn't it? That's why, that's why we have these awful things called prenups, right? Um, which are amendments to the contract. The Bible speaks of marriage not as a business contract, okay? But rather as a spiritual covenant. For instance, God says, um, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a covenant, not a contract. A contract is, if you don't make me happy, I'm leaving. Um, a covenant is, even if you don't make me happy, I'm staying. I'm going to be devoted to you. I love you. I've given myself to you. Covenant. So that's why at weddings, we have witnesses, human beings. But we also have um, the ultimate witness, God, who is present as the divine witness. That's why every year we celebrate anniversaries and, and remind ourselves, celebrate the covenant of marriage. So my wife and I, um, we entered into our marriage as a covenant when we were 23 and 21, almost eight years ago. And <laughs> that, 
you laughed too quick on that one. Is so I was waiting for it. No, 23 years ago, and that's different than all my other relationships. So many of my uh, relationships can be contractual, whereby, for instance, I work for a church, and so I'm agreeing that I'll provide certain work, and the church will compensate me. And, and while I don't have a contract, it is more of a contractual type agreement. But my wife, that's not a contract. Um, that's a covenant. It doesn't matter what she says or does. I love her. I'm devoted to her, and I'm committed to her. Covenant. Now, what I'm about to tell you Christians, um, people have used, Christians have used as a blunt instrument to hammer other Christians. They use it um, to manipulate and shame and keep people in abusive relationships. So here it is. This is from the Bible. God hates divorce. This is God's emotional feeling about divorce. Malachi 2, uh, God says, I hate divorce. Now, notice uh, if you read the rest of it, even that one verse in context, you can see there's a lot more nuance, a lot more tenderness going on, even advocating for women. Okay, but some of you have just heard those three words used like a knife to your heart. God hates divorce. Now listen, and for some of you, this may be the most important thing you've ever heard me say, okay? That does not mean that if you're divorced, God hates you. You need to know he loves you more than you can comprehend. He, 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 more than you can get your head around how much he adores you, loves you, considers you precious. And some of you need to hear it again today and maybe believe it for the first time today. There are those who have been um, uh, through divorce and... I'm willing to bet to a person that you hate divorce too because it's painful, because it's heartbreaking, it's expensive, it affects your kids one way or another, and it changes the course of your life. You know, in the Ganyu house, we have said somewhat symbolically that we won't even say the D word, you know, it, it won't even be in our vocabulary. You know, we're, we're not leaving um, the door open, even just a crack for, for the possibility. As Christians, you know, we're going to keep working at love as though there's literally no other option. And, uh, well, I'm going to throw you guys under the bus now. You know, David and Christine have been married for about a year. And uh, just, what, how long? Two and a half. Two and a half? Well, you guys are experts now. Why aren't you running, like, uh, conferences and stuff? Just uh, just take off your band for a second. He doesn't know I told him this. Well, it's, everybody knows now. So what, what, just tell us what it says in both your bands there. Maybe I should have talked to you first. This illustration is going. Mine says, even if, my love. Even if. And yours? Even if, darling. And what does even if mean? No matter what. Yeah. Like, this is what we're talking about when we talk about covenant it's even if and in the ganyu house it's like we don't even say the d word but my point is not to be naive in all of this it's it's not to it's not to say there are not legitimate 
reasons for divorce, but rather to push back on sort of a modern-day notion of sort of keeping your options open, right? Of, of keeping the door open just to crack for divorce if, if things don't sort of go the way I hope. So I'm asking you, church, to just slam that door um, in as, as much as it has to do with you um, and, and your say in the matter, that you would commit to live in a house together with Jesus and say, we're going to work this out. We're going we're gonna to fight for our marriage. And some of you might say, that's easy for you to say, your marriage is easy. Oh, oh no. No, it's not. Uh, I won't air all my dirty laundry here, but I assure you, the curse has touched the Ganyu house as well. And my wife would concur and say that maybe living with me is... Um, less peachy and simple than, um, than it may appear. Like, I'm a complicated, insecure guy, and it's very hard to argue with the preacher. I should know. I was raised by one. And Vicky and I believe in and have utilized very good professional counselors in the past. And I come to this passage knowing all too well Glenn has a sort of a, and I have a, so quite a team. Sorry, I throw you under the bus just because I, yeah. I know all too well how, how divorce has affected the Ganyu family, the extended Ganyu family. Divorce, you know, was one of those things, I don't know if you can relate, where growing up, it was one of those things that affected other families, right? One of those things that I'd watch an after-school special about it, but it was distant. Oh, those poor people going through divorce, those unlucky souls. And, and maybe, if I'm being honest, maybe there was a teeny tiny bit of unconscious judgment in that sympathy, you know? And then it touched our family. And I saw the consequences of it right in my face, how it has disillusioned my sister, how, how in obvious and not obvious ways it's affected my niece and my nephew. And as a family, we had to repent and evolve and humble ourselves. And for some of you, this might be the most controversial thing I say ever, but here goes. That particular divorce was a good thing. Or maybe it's better to put it this way. It was the best option of all the bad options. And I believe it was the best option for those kids and for my sister and for their soul, for their future. And as adults now, um, I know they certainly wouldn't undo it. There are others here who have stories of divorce in which if I had been around at the time and if you had asked... I would have counseled you to get divorced. Um, the situation was so untenable, but it's still brutal, isn't it? The hardest thing my sister has ever been through, and by extension, I think one of the hardest things our family has ever been through. So there are circumstances in which breaking the marital covenant is acceptable in the eyes of God. The first one, I mean, it's the most straightforward one, is death. 
There, there's actually no debate among theologians about this, right? If your spouse dies, it's kind of over. Chapter 7, verse 39. And I love my wife, and she loves me. But if, if one of us should pass on and go be with Jesus, the marriage is over. And so don't threaten to haunt your spouse from the grave if they remarry. Because that's just mean. Oh, so you can get out of a marriage for death? Yes. Can you kill them? No. That's, that's wrong. And if your spouse is like, oh, don't buckle up, it wrinkles your shirt. That's suspicious, okay? Uh, another legitimate reason to break the marriage covenant is adultery. And now in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 22, if you committed adultery, what did they do to you? Yeah, they, they killed you. And, and so you didn't have to get an attorney. It was pretty simple. It's like, did you commit adultery? Yes. Oh, hey, where did that rock come from? <laughs> Those were always your last words. Hey, where did that rock? Not very profound, but now in the New Testament, adultery is not punished by death, but it, it justifies potentially Divorce, And so Jesus uses the word adultery in Matthew 5. Um, adultery is an exception clause that is possibly used in some circumstances for divorce. It's the breach of the covenant. And um, it's an abandoning of the covenant, isn't it? So under some circumstances, it may be an acceptable reason for divorce. But it's doubly tragic because adultery should never happen. And now... It doesn't have to end in divorce. You know, wisdom is required in this. I know extremists would like to say, well, if you're not happy, get a divorce, or you should never get a divorce under any circumstances. You know, legalism is way easier, isn't it? Like, the rules are black and white. You don't have to discern anything. You don't have to uh, search the Bible, listen to the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be thoughtful in these matters. But if one person commits adultery one time and confesses and is repentant and wants to change, do you have to hit the eject button? Like, I can tell you story after story of healed marriages who have survived even the betrayal of adultery. It was actually a, a wake-up call for their life and for their relationship and resulted in, in transformation. God healed them. And I don't know how else to put it. We have a professional counselor in our church who has seen couple after couple survive and thrive uh, after an affair. It is, it is possible. But for others, it's a life of habitual, unrepentant sin, affair after affair, lies stacked upon lies. And so one of the questions to consider is, is there genuine brokenness? Is there evidence of repentance? Is there evidence of someone who actually wants to change? Are they, are they heartbroken over their betrayal? Are we looking at someone who has chosen a life of unrepentant sin or is just, you know, destroying this covenant of marriage? It's very different scenarios, aren't they? So we find in this passage in 1 Corinthians 7, if a non-Christian leaves you, that's acceptable grounds for divorce. And what the Bible uh, says is, if a non-Christian and a Christian are married, and let me say this, not ideal, okay? Um, it's not a license for non-Christians and Christians to marry. If you're a Christian, I know that you think you're going to convert your significant other 
after marriage. And for what it's worth, uh, can I strongly recommend that you, you do not, should not, will not marry a non-Christian, okay? I, if my daughters are asking, what do, you, what do you mean by that? No, is what I'm saying. That's what I mean. And if you say, you know, well, they believe in God. You know, James 2 says, so do the demons, but you don't marry them, okay? So let me tell you what I told my girls growing up, um, and they could recite this back to me. Who are you going to marry, girls? They're just like six years old. Um, someone who loves Jesus and treats me like a princess. Yes, good answer. So, so Mac, who are you going to marry? Someone who loves Jesus and treats you like a princess, okay? That's how it's got to be. If you love Jesus, marry someone who loves Jesus, okay? But let's say there, some of you have walked in and have already married a non-Christian and you're a Christian. Or let's say, let's say two non-Christians get married and then one of them becomes a Christian. Then what do you do? Do you get divorced? No. According to 1 Peter 3, it says you love, serve, care for that person, hoping that they become a Christian. One of the most beautiful things I, I've ever seen happens when two non-Christians get married. One becomes a Christian, and then the other in time. Because of love, because of humble serving, becomes a Christian. I've seen couples get baptized together. And, and sometimes one will say, I became a Christian because my wife became a Christian. And then she told me about Jesus, and she loved me, and I saw Jesus change her. And I wanted Jesus too. And that's what 1 Corinthians 7 speaks of as well, that if you are the Christian, you love the non-Christian. You're kind. You don't thump them with the Bible. and You don't become moralistic and legalistic and self-righteous. You're gracious. You're loving and you're kind. And you try with all your heart to make the marriage work. And so you try to show them the love of Jesus. The hope is that they become a Christian. And if not and they're still willing to be married to you, then, then you remain married to them. 1 Corinthians 7 says, remain in that marriage. And who knows, wouldn't it be nice if your spouse got saved too? But there are occasions when the non-Christian says, no, I, I'm out of here, and they walk out. It, it, it could be that you were married as non-Christians and were used to watching porn together or getting drunk together. And then one of you gets saved and the other doesn't. And the one who got saved says, look, I love you, but I can't in good conscience, you know, keep doing that stuff anymore. And the other might say, well, that changes everything. The fun's gone. The whole marriage has changed. And that's it. I want a divorce. Well, 1 Corinthians 7 says we're actually not bound under those circumstances. Uh, additionally, Sexual immorality is a condition for divorce, according to Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Well, how's that different than adultery? Well, here's the Greek word. It's pornea. And Jesus describes it as marital unfaithfulness. It's sort of a junk drawer word that includes <clears throat> more than just adultery. It can refer to anything from the occult to sexual abuse to sexual addiction to sexual perversion. It's, it's a broad word. It might be someone who is just absolutely, unrepentantly, sexually addicted, um, man, you would, lose your, you would lose your appetite this close to lunch if I went into some of the specifics that I've dealt with over the years. Uh, a spouse 
running a Craigslist type ads for hookups. Um, a spouse um, in secretly a 50 shades of gray type subculture posting videos online. A, a, a guy joining a bike gang in middle age and not only doing drugs, but dealing drugs out of the home with his kids present. And the wife says, I don't want to be in a home where there's drugs and getting sold and used. You know how dangerous that is? I feel, I feel like the kids are in danger and I'm in danger. You know what my pastoral counsel was? Leave. Do not pass go. Do not collect $100. Leave. Get out today. I'll come with a moving truck and a baseball bat if you need it. Paul warns that he'll come to the Corinthians with a whip, and I, I was going to come with a baseball bat. I was going to go all Negan if I needed to. But if I had the chance to talk to him, I'd have said, look, if you come to repentance, if you guys can work this thing out, quit the gang. Stop dealing drugs. Stop turning your house into a Breaking Bad RV, you know? Like, but if you don't come to repentance, if you can't live happily ever after, this is a version of marital unfaithfulness. You're supposed to be the husband and the father who loves, defends, cares for, and protects the family. And instead, it turns out that you are the greatest enemy to their safety. So all of this fits under the marital unfaithfulness umbrella. It's a betrayal. In fact, let's go back to that context of Malachi 2, the I hate divorce verse. God says that there were Christian men who had married these non-Christian women, likely because they were hot, right? And then these men recommitted their lives to God and got serious about their faith. Well, what'd they do? It says that they despised and hated their wives because their wives weren't believers and didn't agree with them. And so these men dealt very unethically with their wives. And maybe it's the kind of situation where emotionally, you cut each other off. Uh, sexually, you cut each other off. Where you live in different rooms, you won't even talk to each other or make eye contact with each other. It's, it's treason. It's cruel. It's mean-spirited. And it relates to the next condition, which is hardness of heart. Jesus says in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10 that God intended for us to be married and not divorced, but Moses permitted divorce because of their hardness of heart. Um, what that means is stubborn, ongoing, unrepentant, habitual sin. So, so one person in a marriage may be just a chronic drunk, violent, emotionally abusive, and the spouse says, could you please get treatment? Could you please get help? When you're like that, it is devastating to me. It's devastating to the kids. And the person says, no. It's none of your business. Stay out of this. Hard-heartedness. Won't repent. Won't get help. Won't get counseling. The guy who's just continually harsh with his wife, just screaming, yelling, cussing, threatening, intimidating, that's hard-heartedness. And on the opposite spectrum, maybe a spouse who will literally torment the other by months of the silent treatment. No eye contact, no conversation, nothing as a way to punish. It's hard-heartedness. Um, it's mean-spiritedness. It's unrepentant. And divorce is not God's first choice, obviously. 
But when there is adultery, when the non-believer leaves, when there is treason of sorts, there is a hardness of heart that happens. And sometimes divorce does happen. Now, almost half of marriages end in divorce. And what I'm talking about here are exceptions, right? The times I have counseled leave and don't look back are, are few and far between. They're rare. So often um, there are those who think they should get a divorce when actually they should try and make their marriage work, try and stay. And so we are not legalistic, but at NAC, we want to contend for marriages. We want to fight for the survival of our marriages. Marriages are important to us here. And in the months to come, uh, we're going to be asking, how do we as a church intentionally, strategically, build into our marriages. That's the goal, you know, not to, not to look for marriage loopholes. But I know all too well that there are legitimate questions from people who desire to be biblically faithful. You may ask, for instance, why, what do I do if my Christian spouse insists on divorcing me? You know, I'm a Christian, they're a Christian. They've decided they're not happy, so they want out, and they're filing for divorce. So, Jesus speaks of this in Mark 10. Um, he says very hard words. He says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. He says in general, like, don't get divorced and remarried as a Christian. Work it out. 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11. To the married, I give this command, not I but the Lord. He's saying Jesus spoke about this. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. He's speaking to Christians here. Guys, don't leave your wife. Gals, don't leave your husband. If you're Christians, work it out. In 1 Corinthians 7, are you married? Do not seek a divorce. So, as Christians, the general answer is, is no, don't get a divorce. And as a church, we would generally counsel towards reconciliation, keeping that family intact, while accepting that sometimes deeper sin happens, and therefore staying married is just not possible. Sometimes, quite frankly, there are just straight up innocent parties in all of this. And their Christian spouse leaves them, and they don't give them a choice in the matter. Listen, you are not sentenced to a lifetime of singleness, okay, after that. And also, look at me. Do not endure an abusive relationship, okay? Get out. Statistically, way more women are physically, emotionally, sexually abused in marriage than men. But some... Men are also abused. Often they don't report it because they believe it's emasculating in some way. And we obey the laws of our country, don't we? Which, which means it's a crime is committed. Um, domestic violence, hurting a child. We call the cops and it becomes a legal matter as well as a church matter. We, we talked about it last week. We're not going to cover up sins at NAC. So... Even this, though, I got to say, doesn't always lead to divorce. By God's grace, even this can be healed if there is 
repentance and brokenheartedness and a commitment to change. But that guy, and it's usually a guy, has to earn some trust back, right? You got to get out of that environment. You got to get him treatment, get him counseling, make sure she's safe. And maybe we can then talk about reconciliation, but there's some steps first, some safety guarantees. Um, you may ask, can I remarry after divorcing an adulterer? Meaning two Christians are married, one commits adultery and runs off, the other has a justifiable divorce. Can that person, we might call them the, the innocent party who is left behind, get remarried? Um, the one who was abandoned. And uh, the answer, I think, is, is a qualified yes. Perhaps you've given sort of an appropriate amount of time for the offending party to, to come to repentance. I've seen it happen, folks, where, where God can even heal that. And I'm just being honest. Uh, in my humanness, like, I don't know how Vicky and I could come back from that. But this is the God who heals cancer and raises people from the dead and breaks addiction. And, and so that kind of marriage failure can be healed as well. But generally speaking, the Christians should feel the freedom to remarry if they have been in that situation. Look, there are hundreds of scenarios. There's no one-size-fits-all wisdom here. Um, there's a billion variables, like both sides of the story are important. And we'd want to ask questions like, do you have kids? How long did you hang in there before it fell apart? And um, is the other person open to even having a meeting and talking about this? Is there the possibility of saving this marriage? I realize some of you are going to be very frustrated this morning because you want everything kind of black and white. And when you deal with two human beings who get married and sin against each other and bring in all their family history and all their own hurts, it's complicated. Um, but it's easy for a church to say, nobody gets divorced or, you know, everybody should get divorced. Like, that's simple. It's hard to say, we want to know you, we want to love you, we want to hear your story, we want to hear your spouse's story, we want to challenge you. We want to look at this biblically. We want to hear from the Holy Spirit. We want to give wise, maybe even nuanced counsel. But what if, what if we were incompatible? Surely I can divorce then. No, no. Every marriage is incompatible in some way. It's a combination of two sinners. And some of you get married and you say, well, I wasn't like this till I got married. Yeah, you were. There was just no one there to point it out before. <laughs> you were always that way, always that sinful. And you say, well, I don't like that. Well, welcome to the sanctification process. My wife and I aren't always compatible. But when we choose humility and when we focus on serving one another... <laughs> And I give myself to her, and she gives herself to me. And that's what Jesus does. He humbly gives himself to us, which is why we need the gospel. We need to confess our sins to Jesus and be forgiven, 
and transformed and to learn to take on a servant posture of humility. Like we consider others more highly, Philippians 2 says. And to be honest, incompatibility isn't really a great excuse because because then you'll get remarried to someone else and the stats say that 65% of those marriages will end in divorce because they're the wrong person. You know, I'm learning there's pride and there's selfishness and there's incompatibility because we're not taking care of one another, we're taking care of ourselves. You know, this morning I'm willing to bet some of you have secrets. You have marital unfaithfulness, secret alcoholism, emotional affairs, all kinds of junk. And I'm not naive enough to think that that isn't in this room. And all I can ask you to do is repent of it today. Get help before it's too late. And your shame may prevent you from doing so, but I'll tell you this, prolonging the inevitable is not going to solve the marital problems, particularly if, if kids are involved. You know, where are my ex-Catholics at? Yeah, right on. Thank you for coming. Bless you. Then. <laughs> um, you know something we can learn from our Catholic brothers and sisters is they call marriage a sacrament. It is treated as holy and sacred and a gift from God. And so we would want to elevate marriage like that, wouldn't we? That, that we would not treat it as disposable as the world does. Because we have a counterculture. We have a, a different kingdom and a different king. And we believe kids need a mom and dad who love Jesus, who, who love each other as a picture of the gospel. And for those of you this morning who have been convicted of sin of any sort, you can confess it to Jesus and it'll be forgiven he died for you. He rose for you. Sin is the problem, but Jesus is the answer. You can become a Christian today. Recommit yourself to Jesus today. He'll deal with your sin today. And if you're married, fight for your marriage today. Contend for your marriage. If you've been divorced, I want to say this to you. I hope you got this out of today. You can stop carrying around that heaviness and that shame. You are loved. You are not a second-class citizen in God's kingdom, okay? We sing this song. Even what the enemy meant for evil, you know, he's turning for our good and for his glory. He still has a great plan for you this morning. I believe that. Let me invite the band to come. Will you pray with me? So, Father... I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's, it's practical. I thank you that it's not legalistic or moralistic. I thank you that it honors marriage, that it, it wants children to be raised where the gospel is used so that sin doesn't lead to death, the death of marriage, the death of intimacy, the death of love. God, I thank you for my family, my great kids, my parents who raised me imperfectly, but with Jesus as the foundation. Thank you for my wife, that she loves you, she loves me, she loves our kids. Thank you that we are one, we are in love, we are happy, even though it's a sanctifying process and sometimes it's painful. 
God, I pray for our church that we would be a countercultural kingdom community, that we would walk into marriage with our eyes open and our Bibles open, and that we would walk through marriage hand in hand, confessing sin, forgiving one another. Pray for single parents today. God, it is a hard life, and they need you. Be a good, good father to those who lack a dad. Be a nurturing mother to those who need a mom. I pray for those who are married but are spiritually single, that their choice to intentionally love and serve and respect would be the best witness to their spouse. I pray that there would be spouses this morning who would, who would come to know you. I pray that those who have that wound of divorce, be it kids or spouses, that, that you would be a healer of their heart today. And God, for those that you intend to have remarried, that you would give them loving spouses. And if they're parents, that you would give them spouses that would lavish love on their kids. This is not too tall in order for you, God. We ask it in your name. Amen. Jonathan, thanks for that inspiring Mother's Day sermon on divorce. <laughs> Hashtag worst Mother's Day ever. Um, when you're dealing with hot topics, you know, whether it's LGBTQ or lawsuits, there's not a great Mother's Day sermon. If you want to listen to an inspiring one, go to 2018 on our podcast, and that's a, a good end. But here's my worry, is that something was lost in translation. And for those of you who've been through divorce, you're, you're still leaving here with a, a heaviness, a shame, a yoke, and you shouldn't. And if I did not communicate that, well, I am so sorry. But may the Holy Spirit somehow interpret to your heart what I couldn't, that you are loved. You are not a second-class citizen in God's kingdom. You, you are free this morning. You know, this week we had, we had stuff go behind the scenes where NAC really was the church. People inviting others into their home, meeting needs. Um, it made me really proud to be part of NAC. People are being the church. So I want to thank you for coming to church on a Sunday. It's important that you come, but even more important that you now go and be the church. God bless you as you go.